Hey, uh, I don't really have any little things to talk about before I get started this morning. I, Sarah gave me no announcements, although I do think it'd be cool if we had this chat shoot team. We did name it Pew Pew Pew, right? <laughs> I don't know if it's a bad joke after you know the last couple of weeks. So um, you should pray for people in their tragedies as well. So I, I don't know. Maybe we should hold off an announcement a couple of weeks till everything kind of. I don't, sorry. Let's. Hey, uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Uh, if you forgot one, you can use one. If you don't have one, you can take one. If you've had one before and it kind of fell apart or someone stole it, yay, maybe they'll read it. Take another one. You can take it, take it with you. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. And in Uversion, what you're going to get, if you click on More and Then Events, will come up by GPS in your smartphone. And what you're going to get is uh, the verses we go through this morning. You'll get these these little uh, notes that we do also for the messages will be in there. These are also on the community tables if you want a hard copy. We call that paper. Uh, you get the announcements and everything that goes with today's message. So if you'd like to do that, you can use technology for your benefit. You can get all that stuff in your fingertips as well. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Is <laughs> your back hurt? Uh, this is Exodus chapter 14, verse 22. And it says, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in the midst of places that we do not understand. That we would step into the places you are calling us into. And that even in the midst of chaos and things going on around us that we would simply trust you in the midst of that and we would walk where you call us to walk and go where you call us to go so that you would gain great glory as we as your people live in trust of you and the joy that you provide us amen have a seat so we are doing this series called i believe in miracles Uh, i got the idea because that song was in my head i believe in miracles right and and it sounds like it'll be a great first summer series going through different miracles in the Bible. And then after we kind of did it, I then read the words of the song. And I'm like, that is not, that's, that's not a Bible song. Okay, I'll just, I'll just throw it there. But we'd already talked about it. So we're walking through miracles in the Bible to show what they mean, what, what they don't mean. There's a lot of people today who say, well, I don't believe in miracles because they're not natural phenomenon. They can't be proven. And that makes me laugh because that is really the definition of a miracle, right? It's something that is beyond the realm of the natural. It is supernatural. It's not an everyday occurrence. If it was an everyday, occur- everyday occurrence, it would not be a miracle. So it's not natural, they're supernatural. Today when we talk about miracles in our world, people run to different things like this statue is weeping blood, or I saw Jesus or Mary's face on a piece of toast or a potato or something like that. Or maybe there's even times where someone you thought could never get better out of a sickness and all of a sudden they do. They they got better. I'm like, that's, that's a miracle. We're a people who like to ask and pray God for miracles and situations, but sometimes we fail to understand the reasons behind the miracle that God does. Even miracles in the Bible, I think that we fail to understand sometimes the why of the miracles. So I thought that it'd be fun to talk through a lot of these and you've had other people help me, you know, share in some of these things throughout the weeks. There's one more person coming in three weeks, going to share something else too. Uh, Today's miracle is one that almost everyone has heard of and it is where the miracle of God, he splits the Red Sea and his people walk across on dry land. If you have a Bible and with a hard copy, you can hold to Exodus 14, that's where we're going to be. Uh, There's a lot of speculation about this miracle today. People have different ways of trying to explain it naturally. 
understands the miracle, so it makes sense to them. But again, miracles don't always have to have an explanation because God maybe just decided to do something beyond the realms of nature so that he could bring about a purpose he is, he is doing in the world. And so crossing the Red Sea has been this focal point of movies, songs, uh, the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King actually used the whole idea of crossing the Red Sea about coming out of slavery. Uh, cartoons have talked about this. Charles Schultz, the guy who originally drew the Peanuts cartoon, he talked about this sometimes. Bob Marley even sang this song called Exodus. I'm not going to sing it because I'd butcher it, but these are the words. He goes, send us another brother Moses from across the sea. Come to break down oppression, rule, inequality. Wipe away transgression. Set the captives free. Right? Yeah. See, exactly. So everybody has a take on it. And sometimes I think our takes are misunderstanding of what's happening in the miracle. So today I'm going to look at you with you with the who, what, when, where, and the why. We're going to spend most of our time on the why. So the first part is the who. Who went through the Red Sea? Well, this would be the Israelites and the Egyptians. The Egyptians just didn't make it to the other side. Uh, Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 to 29 goes like this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea all Pharaoh's horses his chariots and his horsemen and in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily essentially this means that God's people are probably light enough as they're walking that they walk on dry ground and the chariots are very heavy so when they went in they sank through and got mud in their wheels and the Egyptians said let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And if you were here last week, this is kind of all that God was doing, trying to get these people to understand who he was, and now they use God's name. The Lord fights for the Israelites. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its natural, normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The water Returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And again, this comes directly out of what Eric talked about last week about God going to the Egyptians and saying, Let my people go, and them saying no. And this kind of when they finally let them go, this is what happens. Now, the Israelite people are those who had cried out to God in the midst of their oppression and their slavery. Somebody hear us. Somebody come save us. And God heard their cry and came to rescue them. And part of this miracle of the Red Sea is that God is bringing this tyranny to an end. So then, what happened? So who, what, what happened? Well, I just read it to you. Uh, the Israelites walked through the sea on dry land. The Egyptians were crushed. And actually so much so that the Egyptians didn't really bother Israel until after the reign of King Solomon. Uh, who, what, when? So when did it happen? Well, when it happened is when everything seemed to be lost. Right? And there's no hope. God's people are trapped between the Egyptian army and this Red Sea. No way out. Game over. The score is 52 to 2. 15 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Now, the, the, the Israelites are actually walking and going past the sea, and God tells them, turn around and go and camp by the sea. That's not very strategic. It's not a great military maneuver unless you're planning to do some type of miracle. Only when it was clear they could do nothing to save themselves, God steps in and salvation comes. 
And the Israelites are kind of funny in this because they sound a lot like us today, that we think God can't really see what's going on in our life, that God doesn't understand. The Egyptians, what they're doing is they're coming after Israel, and Israel starts to complain to Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Moses then has this complaint, and he takes it to God, and God says in Exodus 14, 15, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. So as God's prophet, Moses is representing the people to God, so God rebukes Moses, and that rebuke was for all the people. Don't just sit there on your butt whining. Get up and walk to the sea. Charles Spurgeon writes about these verses, and this is what he says. Far be it from me to ever say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But, beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season, when we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action, and having asked God's guidance, and having received divine power from on high, to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. I'm praying. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. God's like, great, let's go. Hold on, God. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. Let's go. Hold on, God. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. It's like God's like, get up, get going. And what God calls them to do, humanly speaking, is really beyond the bounds of what they can comprehend. I can't walk that way. There's actually an ocean in front of me. I know there is. Wait till you see what's going to happen. It's like, but I don't see it. Right. Walk with me. Trust me where we're going. They didn't even think a miracle was coming. So who, what, when, where? Uh, we don't know exactly where this is. This is about uh, 3,500 years ago. So 3,500 years have kind of passed since this happened. And water levels have changed so much that we don't really know where this crossing was. But it's not the point, right? The point is the why. Why did it happen? And I will tell you this. If you want to understand when Christians say this word salvation in the Bible, this is where you look because this is what explains it to us like no other text does the whole bible everything after this crossing the red sea is looked at of how god came to bring escape and rescue to take us out of the things that are enslaving us and killing us and bringing us in a new life with him in first corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 3 the apostle paul will tell you that crossing the red sea is like baptism and conversion and it's supposed to make us ask questions that in our world today sound really odd like are you saved like people saved what does that mean i i have a savings account what does save mean like what does that what does that mean this is when you walk through this hopefully by the end you're going to get to the implication of what that means and be able to answer that question a little bit better at least for yourself because that's the why of the miracle the the text is going to make us ask what we need escape from what god is pulling us out of and then how we escape I only gave myself one day for this miracle. We're going to have another one next week where they're still in the desert. But I can't read you everything. Essentially what happens is the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, allowed the Hebrews, who were their slaves, to go free. Eric talked about this last week. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. The Hebrews have left this place called the Nile Valley. It's a very fertile place. It's very nice. And they've gone lots of miles on the way back to their ancient homeland, this place called the Promised Land, this place called Canaan. And when they get to the section of the Bible in Exodus 14, they have really come to their first real true physical barrier that they've come to, which is the Red Sea. Pharaoh, back in the Nile Valley, decides, you know what? I'm changing my mind again. I'm not going to let them go. And he goes and he grabs 600 chariots. That's like the modern equivalent of a tank. So he grabs his Abram tanks and he goes after them to catch the Israelites. The Israelites find out about this. They have no doubt in their mind what Pharaoh is going to come and do because of all these things that had happened in Egypt. Pharaoh's coming to wipe them off the face of the earth for leaving. 
And when the Egyptians get close, the Israelites freak out, and they go and they blame Moses. In Exodus 14, verse 12, they say, Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, if you go back to the rest of the book of Exodus, that's not what happened. And that is not what they said. They never said anything like that. What happened is that Moses and his brother Aaron, great name, uh, they're, they're out talking to God, right? And they come back in Exodus chapter 4. And they meet with the Israelite elders and they explain everything God said. He has heard your cry. He's going to rescue you. He's going to redeem you. It's going to be amazing. He's going to free you. And the Israelites are excited. Yes, this is amazing. And they worship God. And what they now remember is totally different because their fear has made them delusional about their past and about their present. Sometimes people say things like, if God just showed up and did a miracle right in front of me, I would totally believe. No, you wouldn't. Look at the Israelites, right? They had 10.5 miracles done with them last week. At one point, the entire land of Egypt is in darkness except where they live. I'd be like, well, this is crazy, right? It'd be like, oh man, look what God did. God comes in and shows who he is to these people and they didn't believe. And now they're afraid that God won't come through. They say it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Originally, they cry out in their oppression and God shows up with irrefutable empirical evidence of his omnipotence and his commitment to them. If anyone was thinking rationally, what they would have said is, you know what, we need another miracle. That's what we need. We need like 11.5 or 12. Let's let's get another one. Because that's what God's going to actually do. If you don't notice, in their thinking, God is nowhere in their equation. They're just focused upon themselves. They're not looking at God or what he is going to do. And because of that fact, they have no hope at all. And I don't know if you see how this relates, but let me try and help this make sense to you. Uh, Modern people today, we love this concept of freedom, right? We love our freedom. The book of Exodus is all about freedom. It's coming out of slavery and going into freedom and liberation. But modern people today, we define freedom like this. Freedom is freedom from having any lord or master over us. Freedom is freedom from any restrictions on my individual choice and what I want to do. And what the writer of Exodus is showing us is that that is impossible, Because that's not really freedom. The Hebrew nation right now are by every definition free. They are free. They're out from under Pharaoh. They haven't even gotten to Mount Sinai, which is where God gives the law and the Ten Commandments, so they're not under God. It's like they don't have a yoke of anybody. No yoke of the Egyptians, no yoke of of Yahweh, the Lord God. They're totally free. And what do you see? That they're slaves. They're slaves to themselves and their own fear. One writer says this, they are slaves to what their senses tell them, what they see and feel and hear instead of what they know to be true. They are slaves to their circumstance. Things aren't going well and all of a sudden God must not be real. Uh, Everything's falling apart. What am I going to do? My world's falling down. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. Modern philosophers will say things to the effect that to be free, to have no lord or master in your life, to belong to yourself, is essentially impossible. It's really a fiction. And I would say that either you're surrendered to God and you're a slave to who he is, or you're a slave to something else. But we are never truly just our own. Something is always going to own us. And this is why God, when he goes and sends Moses to Pharaoh, he doesn't just say, let my people go, because that's what we think of. That's the modern idea of freedom, right? Let my people go. What God actually says is, let my people go so that they may worship me. That's what he says. Because he knows they are not and will never be free until we worship the right thing in the right way. And as an American, this is a radically different understanding of what freedom is. That unless Jesus is the absolute center of our lives, we're going to be a slave to something else. 
Why is this? I got four reasons. I probably stole these somewhere. I don't know where they came from, but I'll give them to you anyway. Uh, Number one is this. We all live for something. We are all living for something. There has to be something in our lives that gives us meaning and significance, so we're always looking for something. Every one of us has something our hearts want. We want inside to matter somehow, to people to notice us in one way or another. This is why people who never go out of the house still look all over the internet and post stuff on Facebook, so people will be like, yay, like, 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 because it's like, oh, look, I matter. Somebody looked at the things I was posting. And we all have a different language for it, and it comes out differently, but we all live for something. The second thing is, whatever you live for, you will end up serving that thing. You will. Meaning, whatever we live for is going to end up controlling us. And no one likes to admit it, but our significance, what we look to, is going to, in the end, determine how we then live. Uh, This is why crossing the Red Sea is so important to the Israelites here, because God carries them out. God redeems them from their slavery, the things that they had put themselves into. And constantly, when mad, they thought, well, I'm not really a slave. Next week, I'll tell you about this thing called manna in the wilderness, this this other miracle, where God, like out of the ether, every day for 40 years, feeds them bread. It's like you wake up in the morning, boom. It's like, what? Miracle. It's it's really cool. They will say to Moses, Exodus 16, verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots, that's like saying mountains of meat, and ate bread to the full, like we ate all that we wanted. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. If God wanted to kill them, there'd be much easier ways to do that. It's like, hey, dry, you know, dry land, Whoop, done, right? If God wanted to take them out, he does, it's just they are always getting their eyes off of who God is. They start to convince themselves that, oh, no, our slavery wasn't as bad as it was. I don't know why we were crying out. Our slavery was great. They cried out because of their oppression. The Egyptians were murdering their children. The the Egyptians said, you've got this job to do, and we're going to take away all your tools to do it. Oh, you can't do your job? Well, now we're going to beat you because you can't do your job, even though we took your tools away. It's stupid, but that's what they were doing to them. They starved them. They beat them. And yet here they're in there saying, oh, you know what? We were having a great time. It wasn't really so bad. And we think that's dumb, right? And yet we do the exact same thing in our lives. We think the things that control us aren't really slavery. You got the obvious ones, like, say, addiction, right? People get, get out, off of drugs, and it's like two weeks, two months, a little bit of time more than that, and they're like, oh, you know, it wasn't really that bad. I could handle it. It, it was good. I, I, I'm okay. Uh, alcoholics, same thing. A couple weeks, a couple months go by. Oh, it wasn't really that bad. I can handle it. People in abusive relationships, right? A couple weeks, a couple months go by. Oh, it wasn't really that bad. There's all these things in our lives that we keep going back into because we think we're not really slaves, and it's not that bad. Uh, Euripides w- was one of the three ancient Greek playwrights who had something to survive. In 430 BC, he said this, No one is free. You're a slave to wealth or to the law or to the people you're trying to please. Now, you don't know Euripides. Uh, you heard this guy named Bob Dylan? Also not going to sing the song, but Bob Dylan <laughs> writes this. He says, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. See, he rhymes. Uh, you, may like to be, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may not believe Euripides. You may not believe the Bible. Believe Bob Dylan, okay? (laughs) Number three, whatever you're living for will control your life and enslave you, whether it's good when you're following Jesus or bad when you're following something else. Some people, as I said, will live in abusive relationships, and they're paralyzed by the thought of losing their partner, so they stay. Some people say, well, I'm never going to get married or settle down because I don't want to be committed to anything, but you're a slave to non-commitment. If you give your life to somebody, you surrender part of who you are to them. You are no longer your own. But on the other hand, if you don't give yourself to anybody, you're a slave to you. 
And what the Bible is saying is that anything at all but God in the very center of our life is going to lead us into terrible forms of slavery. Like, how about this? Uh, I, I love my wife. I enjoy life with her. I think many times I am happier than I really deserve to be. Uh, I hope she is too, but that's debatable because she's got to deal with me. Um, but if God wasn't at the center of who we are, if we didn't love him first over and above the other person, we would then be enslaved by each other. We would say, how dare you not give me this thing that I need? You didn't come through like this. You don't make me feel like this. People can't do that for each other. And yet in marriages all the time, this is what we do. We expect the other person to be God, and they're not God. And even with God as our center, we struggle constantly to not be enslaved by the good things that he has given us. Fourthly, if we fail to get or lose the thing we built our life around, it's going to twist us so we serve it in one way or another until we die. If you build your life around being a good parent and something goes wrong when your kids grow up and they go crazy, you become undone. If you, if you sent your life around being a good breadwinner for your family and you lose your job or your business, you become undone. And we usually don't see that the thing that we're, we're a slave to, that, that we're a slave to that thing unless something goes wrong with that thing. We don't even notice until something goes wrong. Like, uh, God forbid, a, a parents, parents lose a child or a, or a spouse loses another spouse or maybe you have a child with a disability. If that is what you base your life around, it's going to curse you the rest of your life. It is. It will attack your faith in God. There's going to be self-loathing on the inside, like maybe you should have done something different. You're going to have anger against the world around you, and again, ultimately against God himself. See, what we need to be saved from is not from serving God. The truth is, if we're not serving God, then we're slaved to something that someday is going to kill us. It will wrap ourselves around it. And what we need is escape. What we need is to cross the sea. We need to step into new life and liberation that God brings. And so God's going to take and save these Israelites through a decisive act on his part for them. And there's all this language in the New Testament that defines this act and how this miracle relates to us. Like when Pharaoh sets out with all of his chariots to go after the Israelites, from the moment he does that, he puts the Israelites under this this condemnation. He's coming to kill them, a sentence of death. And as long as the Hebrews were on his side of the sea, in the area that he controlled, they were under that death sentence. They're under condemnation. But as soon as the Israelites crossed the sea, They come out from that sentence of death, and there's no more condemnation for them. In a moment, as soon as they crossed over, they crossed into life and freedom. Jesus says this in John 5, 24. This is out of the NIV. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. This is Red Sea language. This is Exodus language that Jesus uses. What you have to understand is salvation and Christianity and the Bible is completely different than any other religion in this world. In every religion, it's you get converted, you learn these things, you do the right things, and as you do these right things, you learn more things, you get closer to this God, then one day you die, and some religions say, now you've got to do it all over again, and other ones say, well, you get more enlightenment, but you've got to work harder and harder and harder. Jesus says, no, I have something else for you. There is a moment in your life that you are under condemnation liable for everything you've ever done, the things that are killing you and enslaving you. And there can be a moment in which you cross over. No more condemnation. We cross from death to life now. And I will tell you, if you don't know Jesus this very second, you can know the Lord God of the universe accepts you, that he has brought you and that he delights in you and receives you now. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean a change of character. I mean, I, I think it should bring about a change of character eventually because we love Jesus more than ourselves. But what makes a Christian is not a change of character behavior. It's a change of status. It's a status change. We go from death to life. We go from condemnation to freedom. We go from enemies of God to being children 
of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What it means is we have crossed over. We have left death and slavery behind. No condemnation. Life and freedom. God leads these people out before they get to Mount Sinai, which is the place where they'll get the law and the Ten Commandments. He leads them out before they get to the law, which means this is a salvation apart from obeying the law. It's a salvation that is solely graced by God himself. Everyone who walked across that sea was saved. The people with strong faith, the people with weak faith, the the whiners, the country music lovers, the metalheads, all of them, all of them. You gotta understand, it's not just that God saved them apart from their obedience to the law. God saves them despite their quality of faith. Because it wasn't the quality of the amount of faith they had that saved them. It was the object of their faith. God comes in. God rescues them. Walk to the sea. Parts the thing. Brings them across. God does this work for them. It's the object of their faith. It had nothing to do with their righteousness or moral behavior. Because to become a Christian is primarily a change of status. And this happens in a moment. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand salvation. Salvation, all the righteousness of God, was given to us in the person of Jesus as a gift of grace. And there is this thing that's really interesting that most people overlook in this story. In Exodus 14, verses 11 and 12, the people of Israel, they, they act stupidly and falsely like they do a lot and faithlessly. In, in, chapters, in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Moses, he acts very beautifully. He acts very faithfully to who God is. And then in verse 15, God comes and God rebukes Moses. It's like, why? Why would you rebuke Moses? And commentators have debated about this for years. I'm going to tell you why I think it is. Moses gets the rebuke the people deserve because their sins are imputed to him. Because Moses is their mediator. He is their representative. And there are other references and instances of this throughout the Old Testament scriptures in the five books of Moses that we call the Torah. There's even this place in Exodus 32 where the people sin against God. Again, I might add. And the text says, Exodus 32, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses, the mediator, goes before God for them. Because they have a mediator, they walk across the Red Sea from death to life. They had a mediator. And Moses, at the end of his life, says this, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Other translations will say, listen to him. What Moses is pointing to is a greater Moses. Moses says, I'm not the great end-all mediator. There's another one who is coming. That's who you listen to. And when Jesus comes... He uses this language to reference himself as this mediator. He uses all this Exodus, Red Sea language of redemption and God bringing life and freedom again. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus hangs on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why? Because he's our mediator. Because he stands in our place so that we can step out of the bondage that we live in. Jesus, in our place, takes all of God's anger and wrath against sin on himself as his own choice. See, Moses gets the rebuke the people deserve. Jesus comes as our great deliverer and takes everything we deserve as our great mediator. And he leads us out of slavery and into grace. He takes us from the realm of death into the realm of life. He's the one who leads and guides and saves us. Isn't this an amazing piece of scripture? It's amazing. Now, to understand uh, one other thing in this, that the Israelites are a lot like us. So once they get across the Red Sea, you know, were they perfect? 
No, they were terrible people, okay? They're, they're just horrible. They, they always struggled constantly. They're the dumbest people, kind of like us, you know. And, but they continue to whine and mistrust and fail and fall and hurt one another. And what God does is he takes them on this daily journey with him. And he walks them to all these places, molds them and shapes them to, to begin to trust him more and more and more, even in the midst of their failures. This is what God does to them every single day that they were saved, they were brought over from death to life, that day by day God is changing them. And they never had a perfect faith. They never did. But God is moving them, changing them. Now, we as Christians today, there's this big word that Christianity likes to use. It's called sanctification. And it's that same idea. We were saved in a moment. We cross the sea. We are free. But God, day by day by day, takes us and grows us into who we're intended to be. He shapes us to be more like him. Which makes us need to ask a bunch of questions in our own lives, I think. Like, do we find ourselves filled with anger about something? Is there something in your life that just has its claws and its hooks in you and you can't get away from it? Do you find that certain circumstances are paralyzing for you? Is there something in your past you have great trouble getting over because you're just focused on it all the time? What we have to understand is that God is calling us as a people to walk across the sea with him to leave all those old taskmasters behind that want to enslave us, all those things that say, serve us or die. Jesus sets us free from all of that. Now, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Because all the things in our life should not be our masters, but we should use all those things as our servants in serving Jesus. We say to everything that wants to enslave us, you are not my joy. Christ is my joy. You are not my safety. Jesus is my safety. You are not my life. Jesus is my life. We don't need these things to have life because we have him, or more importantly, he actually has us. You know, that's, that's, that's what that looks like. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection to rescue us, to bring us back in. The implications of that is how we get to cross that Red Sea and live and walk in freedom. Uh, my wife and I are watching this TV show this week, and they had these Christians on it. And like I swear, in every TV show I watch, I never see Christianity portrayed how it is because I don't think the writers of these shows are actually believers, or if they are, man, they had a terrible upbringing in church. And, and I watch this, and it's all about do this and do this, and then God will this and do this and do this. And I'm like going, oh, it's so bad because that's not the gospel. That is not what Jesus spoke. It is not what everything in the scriptures reference of how God saves us. God saves us because of his definitive act for us. God brings us in because of his definitive act for us. Next, we're going to talk about this little word as well called justification. It's a really big word that's like sanctification, but it's, it's cool too. We'll talk about that. Uh, but it's this idea that God has justified us in his own eyes by what he has done. This is the implications of all that the gospel brings. This is why at Element we talk about communion every week. It's a reminder of what Jesus did by his own choice to rescue us because we couldn't save ourselves. And that's why you break that cracker and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his body and blood for us, broken and shed for us, so that we, understanding this, can be those who begin to live in the understanding of the gospel, to walk across all the seas, to walk across our taskmasters that have their hooks in us so deeply and walk and step into freedom and life and grace. I mean, our God is good. And he does this for us. And we get to be a people who understand what it means to be saved. We're saved from everything that wants to get its hooks in us. We're saved from ourselves. We're saved from sin and death. We're saved from condemnation. We get life. His life given to us. The band's going to come up. 
as they do. I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, if you have something in your life, maybe it has, it just has its hooks in you, in you so deep, and you don't know what to even do with it. They would love to pray with you about that. They would love to talk to you what it's like to, to metaphorically walk across this sea from slavery into, into hope and life and freedom and grace again. To understand what God is doing in our rescue. Because it changes who we are and how we see everything in the world around us. What God has done through his own choice as definitive act to bring us in. And we again get to walk into hope and life and grace. And if you need prayer for something in your life, they would love to pray with you about that. There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. And I'd encourage you to take some sermon notes or get the app and take those questions and ask some questions to one another this week. What things do you feel like still has its hooks in you? What things do you deny has its hooks in you but actually does has its hooks in you? What things do you need prayer from each other for? to begin to walk through into, into, from the slavery into freedom and grace and life again. What things is God leading you into? Right? <laughs> because he's good. He is good. And he longs to rescue us. So let's be a people who live in that great liberation that we have received. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to understand this amazing grace that we have so received of your rescue of who we are. That you, as our great Savior, have moved us from the realm of death into life, from condemnation into freedom, from being your enemies into being your children. All because of what you decided to do and not what we have done. Father, all of this speaks to your great love that is so incomprehensible to us because it's not how we love. Father, we so often have a standard or make people live up to that standard or we won't love them. And yet we are a people who have constantly failed perfection. And yet you love us so much so that you would step into the mess that we have created and rescue us exactly where we are. That as many times as we step across that scene of freedom and as many times we turn around and look back where we came from, is as many times as you just constantly steer us and draw us back toward yourself. So teach us to be a people who live the life that you have brought to us, who live this great life of freedom, not just that sin has let us go, but that we have been set free so that we can worship you in all the freedom that you bring. So teach us to be a people who live in that great and amazing grace of splitting seas and drawing us to yourself. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.